passage. You take out your Bible, go to Acts chapter 2, this passage we've been in for the last three or four weeks and that we're going to be in for the next three or four weeks. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, as we simply look at the uh, first church, first believers in Jerusalem, and uh, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves, and then gives us a list of the things that they devoted themselves to. So we, first week we saw that they devoted themselves first and foremost to Christ. The, their devotion was to a person, Jesus Christ. And then because of their devotion to Christ, they, they devoted themselves to certain tasks, to, to certain things, in order that they might be more fully devoted to Christ. So none of, the, none of the things that we're looking at are ends in themselves. They all should point us to Christ Jesus and deepen our relationship with Him. Last week, we, we saw how they devoted themselves to Scripture. And then we, uh, we, we kind of asked, okay, if the early believers devoted themselves to Scripture, how are we doing? And and what we saw is that, generally speaking, Americans and, and specifically American Christians are rather uh, confused about the authority and the applicability of Scripture. And yet we saw that Scripture tells us itself that it is uh, the, profitable for, uh, for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, that, that Scripture is God's Word to us. This morning we come to the second part of that passage, the, the next thing that they devoted themselves, and that is to fellowship. And so I'm just curious, when you think of fellowship, I, I want you to stop and think about what, um, what images come to mind when you think of fellowship. And we're Baptists, so, so um, for some of us at least, probably the first thing that we thought of was food, Right? I mean, we have a fellowship lunch. I mean, we haven't in a while. One of these days, we're going to be able to have fellowship dinners again, right? Lord willing, hopefully. And I, it's been a while since I've had a potluck, and, and uh, I'm feeling it, right? Maybe, maybe laughter, maybe, maybe just images of, of people. When you think of fellowship, you think back to, to just sweet times of fellowship that you've encountered at maybe here at FBC or maybe a previous church. And these are right and good, and we'll see that this morning, that the food plays a big part in, uh, in the fellowship that the first church uh, experienced. But the, the New Testament uses a word for fellowship, and the Greek word that it uses is koinonia. Now, this is a unique word in the New Testament. It, it's a word that's not used very often. In fact, it's not used at all in the Gospels. It's, this is the... In, in, Acts chapter 2 here is the first time that we see this specific word used to describe the fellowship of the first church. And this word refers to mutual interests and a sharing within a local church. And so the picture is not just of people getting together and eating together. The picture is of members taking care of one another. It meant spending time together. And the way we see this play out in, in the lives of the early believers is that uh, it, it show, we see them sharing meals, sharing possessions, and sharing lives. In fact, this is our big idea for the morning. The early believers shared meals, possessions, and their very lives with one another. And we'll see this played out in a couple of texts before us 
this morning. So if you have your, your copy of Scripture, uh, turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and let's stand as we honor the word of the Lord this morning. Acts chapter 2, 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this wonderful passage and for these weeks that we have to spend time breaking this passage down and to see what the early believers devoted themselves to and how we, nearly 2,000 years later, should be devoted to the same things in order that we might be fully devoted to Christ. So this morning as we look at fellowship, will you reveal to us ways that we can strengthen the fellowship here at FBC, even in this very unusual year, in this challenging year that we're experiencing? Pray you'd move in our time together this morning. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. So again, the big idea, the early believers shared meals, possessions, and their very lives with one another. Now, if you're following along in the bulletin, those are the only blanks you have to fill in. So if you're like a, you know, you know if, you, if you really like enjoy all the blanks, my apologies to you. Um, but, but what we're going to see, you just have kind of the basic outline there of, of shared meals and, and some verses, shared possessions, some verses, and then shared lives and, and some verses there. That, uh, the reason I put that in there is so uh, if, if you are so inclined, you can go back and, and read these passages and see what it looked like for the believers to share meals, to share their possessions, and to share um, their very lives with one another. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. The first one is shared meals, all right? So, so as Southern Baptists, when we plan a fellowship meal, we are in good company with the early disciples. Verse 46 says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, hear this, and broke bread from house to house. In fact, in verse 42, when it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, the very next line says, to the breaking of bread. And so sharing meals together as followers of Christ goes back a long way. This has been a common practice for believers to share meals. But it's not just that they would sit around and have a potluck or that they would sit around and, and, uh, and break bread together. That's, that's certainly pictured here. But what's also pictured is a sharing of the Lord's Supper, an observance of this together where when they would gather together, they would remember Christ's sacrifice on their behalf by observing the Lord's Supper. And so it's not either or. That what, what's pictured here in this, in this picture of fellowship is both and. So they would gather together, they would observe the Lord's Supper, and then they would share a meal together. Now, if you remember Paul 
um, addressing some of the believers in 1 Corinthians, uh, it didn't take long for this to get out of hand. And so apparently what would happen is they would almost do like a picnic where everyone would bring their own food and you'd have a wide range of socioeconomic uh, diversity in the local church. And so you'd have some people who are poor who would barely like maybe, maybe just bring a, a few pieces of bread. And then you'd have some who were rich who would basically bring their own feast. And they're all sitting here eating together. And you have rich people gorging themselves while, while the poor are still um, just, just barely getting fed at all. And, and Paul basically says, uh, asks the believers in, in Corinth, do you see the problem here? You're gathering together to fellowship. And yet even in that, um, you, you are creating division. And so Paul reminded the Corinthian believers that even in their sharing meals, they are to share. That's the whole idea of a potluck, right? You you share. And, uh, you know, if if you are itching to to do a potluck, you know, if it's just been a long time since you've uh, made a covered dish and you're just itching, my address is... (laughs) No, isn't that the whole idea? We, we, We bring food and we share together. As we've said, you know, these, these last few months um, have been unusual, and there will be a day, I, I'm, I'm confident in this, in the Lord, that there will be a day where we'll be able to gather together and have a potluck again, because I'm dying for some deviled eggs and some fried chicken, all right? But what a, just, just imagine what a sweet time of fellowship that will be. But it goes beyond simply sharing meals what we also saw the early believers did is that they shared possessions. We see this in verses 44 and 45. It says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, now really quickly, um, what, what we don't see here is, is some sort of forced religious communism where, where people gave up all their property and just kind of donated that all to the church. That, that's not what we see happening. What we see happening was a voluntary sharing or a selling of possessions. In fact, nowhere throughout the New Testament are we told or even given a hint that individuals cease to own their own houses lands, or possessions. So, so we don't see like this communal, um, this communal type of living where, where people just sell, give up everything they have to the church and move into like communal Christian communities. No, what, what we see is people continue to have their own houses, to have their own uh, places of work, and yet they held on to their stuff loosely so that when a need arose, They were willing to sell their possessions if necessary to meet that need within the church. Now, Acts chapter 2 really just gives us a broad view of that, right? They were selling their possessions and property and devoting or distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Well, a couple of chapters later, we're given a much more clear picture of what this actually looked like. And so if you're in Acts chapter 2, flip over to Acts chapter 4 with me. We're given a specific example here in beginning of verse 32 of what this sharing of possessions looked like. This is what Luke tells us. 
Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Look at 34. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Now, let me clarify, because we know that the what we have before us are English translations from, from the Greek. And, and English is a poor vehicle to communicate what, what the original Greek language communicated. Uh, and so what's happening here is uh, in verse 34, for, there was not a needy person among them because all it says all those who owned lands or houses sold them. But the, the idea of what's happening here is that all those who owned lands or houses would sell them, and the idea is from time to time, as needs arose, the members of that local church would do what was necessary to meet the needs. 36, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, you might recognize that name because this is a man who will later go on and be a missionary with Paul. Barnabas. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're not told what the need was. We're not told, we're not told how often this happened, but the picture we're given is that when there's a need, the people in the church rose up and met that need. Now, again, cultures change, right? So it's important to note that this is before the days of medical insurance, but before the days of government assistance. But, but I would also argue that I think sometimes in the 21st century, we've relied too much on the government to do things the church is supposed to be doing. One of the great joys of my life as, as a pastor is when I get a phone call or a text from somebody simply saying, hey, we have uh, some money we want to give. We don't want anybody else to know about it, but we, we have some money we want to give. Where is there a need? I think back to a couple who shall remain nameless um, who called me after the first round of stimulus checks and said, um, we, we, got, you know, we, we didn't get a choice in this matter. The government sent us this money. We don't need it. Can the church use it? To, to which the response is always, well, yes. Um, and, and then the question is, how? And I said, well, quite honestly, I said, our, our benevolence fund, especially in those early days, March, April, we didn't know how long this was going to go. We didn't know how it would affect jobs uh, for, for the members of our, of our church. I said, we, we, we could use just kind of this, ben, just this benevolence fund that's not marked for anything else and it's just kind of at our discretion to use to meet needs. Okay, and that's, that's where that money went. It went into a benevolence fund. And, and while $2,400 is not a great sum of money, it, it, it's, it's a good amount. And just a few weeks later, we got a call from an individual who works at a funeral home. They said, we have this family here who had an unexpected 
tragedy, and they don't have money to cover the cremation. So they're, they're, they're trying to do things as cheap as possible. They're trying to be cost-effective, but they don't have the money to cover even the cremation. Would, would the church have any money to, to be able to help cover that? And lo and behold, we have this money sitting in this benevolence fund. We were able to help a family in, in a time of need. Now, so sometimes the question will come up, well, well, what follow-up are we going to have with them? Were we able to share the gospel with them? Were we able to make, make a further impact in their lives, or did we just meet this one need? To which my response typically is, does it really matter? Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm all about sharing the gospel. Don't, don't hear me say I'm, it doesn't matter that we don't share the gospel, but in, in that case, we, we, were, we got a call from a local organization that we know saying, here's a need. And we were able to meet that need because of the generosity of members of First Baptist Church. I can think back through multiple times where a need has arisen within our body of believers, and we'll come and we'll simply say there's a need. And, and we, we have a need that's in addition to our normal tithes and offerings that we give in the offering plate, and there has not been a time that those needs weren't met. This is what the early believers did. They, they met needs when they arose. It's what we're still called to do, to meet needs. And one of the best parts about what I get to see that often nobody else gets to see is I, I get to hear stories about how there, there is a need somewhere that I'm not even aware of until somebody comes and says, um, I found out about this need and I want to give this to meet that need. And that's usually followed by, and I don't want anybody else to know. I don't want this on my giving statement at the end of the year. I, I just want to meet this need. Can we do that? To, to which, the, Yes, we, we can. So we're given this picture in Acts 4 of, of this man, Barnabas, who, who sold a piece of land he owned brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, in this case, obviously this was known, right? And what's very interesting is right after this, we go into chapter 5, and we're given almost the exact opposite example with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And you may be familiar with their story, but look with me at Acts chapter 5, because we're given here, what we see is that when it comes to meeting needs, when it comes to the fellowship, motives matter. Chapter 5, starting verse 1, says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, really quickly, this is not the issue. The issue is not that he sold a piece of property and said, hey, we're going to keep back X amount and we'll give the rest. On the surface, that's fine. They sold a property, right? It's, that, that money is theirs to, uh, between them and the Lord to figure out what to do with. Maybe they, had some other, maybe they had some other needs in their own lives they needed to meet by selling that property. But what happened was, apparently they came and they told the apostles, we sold this land for this much and we are giving all of it to the church when in fact they had kept some back. 
And, and the idea is that, that they saw what happened with Barnabas at the end of chapter 4, and, and it, may, maybe there were some people who just told him how much they appreciated that, and may, maybe there was some praise, even though he wasn't seeking it out. Maybe there's some praise that came his way. And Ananias and Sapphira said, you know, he sure looked pretty good. We could do that too. So let's do that so that we get the same praise and everyone just looks at us glowingly like they did Barnabas. So this is given not out of generosity, but out of greed. Verse 3, Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to, the, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And here's where it gets real, verse 5. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. You think? The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes. She said, for that price. In other words, yes, Peter, we absolutely, we gave everything that we sold that land for to the church. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men carried, when the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. I don't think there was any more lying about how much money people were giving at that point. Now, now we might look at this and say, man, this seems extreme, right? I mean, they, 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 they brought money. They, they laid it. And the only issue was maybe some pride in their heart and God killed them for it. But what we see here is God takes generosity very seriously. And God takes motives seriously. In fact, remember what Jesus said about giving? He said, don't, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You know, that's, and I know we, we've entered kind of into a, a time in the 21st century where um, we, we have giving options that, that have not been available, like giving online. But you know what? One of the things that I love about, about that personally for me is, is it lets me not let my right hand know what my left hand is doing. It's a private thing between me and the Lord when I, when I click give on that, on that app. So I'm not tempted to, you know, like write my check and kind of place it on top of the offering plate so that everyone sees the, how many zeros there aren't at, at the end of that. So when we give to meet needs, when we give to further the sake of the gospel, how often do you check your heart? And ask, why? Am I, am I giving this just because it's expected? Am I giving this um, because I feel guilty about maybe, maybe, you know, I bought something I, I probably shouldn't have spent money on, so, but it's okay, I'll throw like extra 20 bucks in the plate so that I appease my conscience? Or are we simply giving out of obedience to the commands that God's given us and out of a cheerful heart? Now, now really quickly, one of, the, one of the key killers of giving, of generosity, of sharing 
is debt. Debt is, is absolutely a generosity killer. And, and I've know many people who say, we, we want to give, and we've seen needs in our community, we want to we meet those, but, but so, we're saddled with so much debt right now that we just can't. And so if that's you, I'm not, not asking you to raise your hand, this is not confession time, right? But, but let me tell you, this, this study that we're about to do on Wednesday nights will help address that. It'll help you understand how to manage debt, how to, how to manage what, what you make in a, in a way that brings glory and honor to God as a good steward, and then how to give generously. And, and, and let me say, you know, cards on the table, but the, the point in doing this was not, hey, if, if people come, they'll feel guilty and they'll give more. No, but, but I, w- I want us to be, as, as followers of Christ, people that are generous, not just in giving to the local church, but in meeting needs in the lives in the, of our neighbors, meeting needs in the lives of the community around us. We should be, as, as followers of Christ, who have been lavished with grace, as the Scripture tells us, we should be generous people. And this, this study, of money, um, the money challenge, will help us to understand what it means to be generous. So for the early church, the shared shared possessions, holding loosely to stuff and being generous with financial resources was one of the characterizations of the early church. But it didn't stop there. So it wasn't just a, they ate together and they gave and they shared stuff. They shared their very lives together. If you're in Acts, go to Acts chapter 16. We're going we're gonna to go we're going to fast forward a bit in the life of the early church. And we're going to look at this church in a city called Philippi. You may be familiar with this. Paul wrote a letter to uh, this church. We, we have it in our Bibles as the letter to the Philippians. In Acts chapter 16, we're given a picture of this local church that, that is comprised of vastly different people. So starting in verse 11... I'm not going to read all of 11 through 34, but I want to highlight some things here. This is, this is one of, I think, the most fascinating chapters in all of the book of Acts. Luke tells about his travels with Paul here, beginning in, in verse 11. He said, when they came to Philippi, they sat down and they spoke to women gathered there. There was a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, from the city of Thyatira. Now, what you need to understand is, is purple was considered a luxury item. So, so the fact that, that she's a dealer in purple cloth is most likely a reference to the fact that, that she's pretty well off. All right, so she's dealing in luxury items. So, so she's, she's selling Lexuses, not Chevys, okay? So she's probably doing rather well. The end of verse 14 said, The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying, and she and her household were baptized. And she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. 
Right? So right here, this, this woman who it said was already God-fearing, but she accepts the message of who Jesus is and is saved. As far as we know, that means she was integrated then into the life of the church in Philippi. Then they leave her house one day on their way to prayer, and they're followed by this slave girl, which says, who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. All right, so, so suddenly they're, they're followed by this slave girl who is demon-possessed, and she made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. And I love this next phrase. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. So, you, and, and what then happens is the owners realize, wait, that... Like, that, that made us money, the fact that she could tell fortunes. And now Paul just cast this demon out of her, and she's no longer useful to us. See, the abuse that was happening here, they didn't care about her one lick. They only cared about what they could get from her. And we're not told this explicitly, but, but, but hear with me what happens here. This, this woman, suddenly her value was gone. And she would have been discarded. Is it out of the question to think that these believers that were with Paul took her in? When, keep in mind, when we see, most of the time in, in the New Testament, when we see demons cast out, that's usually accompanied by a salvation experience. So I don't want to read too much into this. I don't want to say this is absolutely what happened, but it's at least possible that, that this young lady comes to faith in Christ and then it becomes a part of the church in Philippi as well. So, so far within this church, we, we know we have Lydia, a woman who is probably quite well off, running a good business. And now a girl who just had, a slave girl who just had a demon cast out of her. Well, the owner's, throw a big fit because their, their hope for profit is gone. They have Paul and uh, Silas arrested, thrown into jail. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the jail. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped, which is what normally happened if the doors were open. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. That's unusual. Imagine a jail and suddenly the doors fly open and nobody leaves. Jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, at this point, I think he's thinking, what can I do to save my neck? Because they're about to kill me. My job as the jailer was to make sure the, the people in jail stayed in jail. 
But Paul and Silas take his physical question and point him to a spiritual reality. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in the house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized in Philippi. Now, now consider with me just for a second here. So we have Lydia, a woman who was well off, who had a business selling purple cloth. This slave girl who had a demon cast out of her and now a jailer and his family. And I would ask you simply this, what did these people have in common? Except that they came to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that unites us together in in sharing lives as followers of Christ is not that we all have the same interests or the same hobbies. In fact, we we don't even necessarily have the same political beliefs. The thing that unites us is Christ Jesus. Now, now, now hear me out. The world does not understand this. Maybe right now, at the, the least of at any point in my lifetime. We saw that this week. Um, if, if you watched any of, of uh, Judge Barrett's confirmation hearings, there was a really interesting scene at the end of the hearings where Dianne Feinstein, the top Democrat on the Senate Judicial Committee, thanked Lindsey Graham, the top Republican and the chairman of the Judicial Committee, for, for the way the hearings were conducted. And then after the mics were turned off, they, they gave each other a hug. And social media lost its ever-loving mind. And then the, the responses to that picture of, of the two of them hugging were, in a word, simply this, that shouldn't happen. She should not hug him. How dare she? Why, would, why on earth would you thank someone like, why would you hug someone like that? That was the, that was the response that came out. So we see that in the culture around us, right? We, we are in a place where we are divided. And, and I dare say the next two, three weeks, it's not going to get any better. And beyond that, I would say depending on which way, I don't really think it matters which way the election goes on. That's not going to get any better in the culture at large. So, so hear me, believers, don't let this affect our fellowship within the church. Because there are people here who will vote very differently than you. There are people here who have, inside this body of believers, who have different political beliefs. We're not united as the body of Christ because we agree on political issues. There are some basic ones, I think, that, that as, as followers of Christ, I would, I would argue are, are top-level issues for us. 
But folks, we are united here because we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the bond that holds us together. Don't let different interests, don't let different politics, don't let the things the world says matter divide us as followers of Christ. Because as we live in a world that is becoming, I I think, in, in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to the things of God, believers, we need one another. We need to cling to one another maybe tighter than we have ever before in our lifetimes. And so, let me, let, let me ask just really quickly, what does fellowship look like in American churches? Let's look at some research quickly, and then we'll close out. Harry Reeder, who's a Presbyterian pastor, wrote a, wrote a fantastic book called From Embers to a Flame, just on church revitalization, said this. In his experience as a pastor, about 40 years of experience as a pastor, he said, new members must develop at least three new meaningful relationships within the first six months of their involvement in the body life of the church. At least three. That, the, the fellowship of the local church is based on relationships, right? Where, where we understand we are united together in Christ, therefore I, I want to get to know you. So, um, that, he says at least three new meaningful relationships. That means more than just, hey, thanks for coming to church this morning. It was good to see you. See you next Sunday, right? It needs to be deeper than that. Andy Stanley and, and Bill Willits in, in a book they wrote called Creating Community make this fantastic observation. Although we drive on overcrowded freeways to catch overbooked flights and sit in jam-packed airplanes, we live in isolation. And by the way, this was written um, in the mid-2000s before everybody had your own private distraction device right in front of your face all day long. How much more true is this now? We live in isolation. You ever been in a, I mean, maybe not in a while, but you ever been in like, been around a group of teenagers? Do you know what you see? There might be 10 of them together, but they're not together. They're, they're, 10 of them might be together and they're right there. And then in, in a book called Being the Body, Chuck Colson, who was uh, president of, of fel, um, prison fellowship ministries before he passed away, simply says this, surveys show the number one thing people look for in a church today is fellowship. People are looking for a place where they can belong. So if fellowship then is the number one thing people look for, and it's, the, it's one of the biggest needs we have as believers to be connected to other believers, to have meaningful relationships, how are we doing? Well, last January, January 2019, LifeWay Research Uh, published a study, and it showed this, that two-thirds of American young adults who attended church regularly for at least a year as a teenager said they dropped out of church for at least a year between the ages of 18 to 22. So these are are kids who spent at least a portion of time in in, in church growing up who end up leaving the church for a period. And they discovered several reasons for this. So, So the top reason 
was uh, cited by 34%, just over a third, was that, that they, they were moved to college and they were no longer attending a church. So, so they, they, they moved out and, and just, just didn't plug back in. That's concerning, but for a whole other reason than, than, than what we're talking about today. 32%, check this out, almost a third. Church members seeming judgmental or hypocritical. No longer feeling connected to people in their church, 29%. There's that connection, right? I'm no longer connected there. Disagreeing with the church's stance on political or social issues. Um, again, I would like to explore that a little bit deeper. That doesn't really address the, the need of fellowship. And then work responsibilities. Got a job that requires me to work during, uh, during church. But look at, so, so not the top reason, right? So not, not just moved to college and didn't get plugged in, but, but the next two have to deal with that. Church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical, and I no longer feel connected. Isn't it interesting that almost a third said they no longer felt connected to people in their church? And the last kind of number I'm going to throw out is um, 2008, a, a book written by a vice president at Lifeway called The Shape of Faith to Come by a guy named Brad Wagner. He did a survey of American Christians and he, he discovered that only 27% said they strongly agreed that they had developed significant relationships in their church. So here's the thing. We know across the board, generally speaking, fewer Americans are attending church. And, and, and that's, that was true before COVID. I think it's going to be true long after this. I, we've seen a significant decrease in in-person attendance, and, and the longer this goes on, those numbers are not coming back, and, and a lot of people don't think that they will quickly. At least one of the major reasons for that is because people don't feel connected. They don't have fellowship in their local church. So what do we do? How do we fix it? Remember what we saw in Acts 2. The believers were together and had all things in common. Now, now look, this year has been hard for fellowship, right? As I, as I shared in the prayer time, one of, the, one of the, the most difficult parts of this virus has been the isolation it's created. We went through several months where we were not able to meet together in person, and, and since then, for, for a variety of reasons, many people just haven't felt, felt comfortable coming back and being around a crowd. It's hard when we can't be together. But that doesn't change the fact that fellowship begins with relationships. Right? Relationships are the bedrock of fellowship. So, so, so here's the thing. If you see a new face, introduce yourself. Maybe don't shake hands. Maybe don't go right in for the hug, Right? We can still have a, a friendly wave. Hello, nice, to, good to have you with us this morning. And then as we begin to come out of this, as restrictions begin to be eased, as we prayerfully have effective treatments, and Lord willing, soon a, an immunization for this, begin to have people over again. Share meals, share life together. 
If you're here and you, you really want to get to know some of the people, sign up for some of the events coming up. The Fall Festival, even though we're going to be kind of socially distant out there with, with trunks, you, you can set up your car and have some great conversations with people in the, in the car next to you. As we move into the, the Christmas season, we have our, our Operation Christmas Child shoebox packing party. That's a great way to interact and get to know some people. We're probably, if you've, if you've been here in the years past, we've done it in the Fellowship Hall. We're going to do that party in here so that we can be distanced a little bit more and, and be safe, but still uh, have an effective ministry there for the Angel Tree party. Even though it's going to be a drive-through event this year where people will come and pick up their gifts, we, we can still be here and, and get to know one another. See a new face. Maybe give them your number and, and Maybe invite them to lunch. We can still eat at restaurants right now, thank the Lord. Um, maybe you're here and, and as part of, of, of coming to know the fellowship, you need to, you need to move from being an attender to being, an, a member, to being a member of FBC. I'd love to visit with you about what that looks like. You, the last thing is this. You can't really be a part of the fellowship if you're not a part of, of the body of Christ. You can't be a part of the church until you are a member of the body of Christ, until you have asked Lord Jesus to forgive your sins and to be your Savior. And you can do that this morning. Put this prayer up. It's not no magic words. It's just a simple prayer for you to understand what it means to, to ask the Lord to forgive your sins and follow Him as Savior. Simply this, my life is broken. I realize that because of my sin, I need you. I believe Christ came to live, die, and was raised from the dead to rescue me from my sin. Forgive me. I turn from my selfish ways and put my trust in you. And I know that Jesus is Lord of all, and I will follow him. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. You can come down. If, you, if you'd like to know more about following Christ, you can, you can say, come down and just say, Kyle, I want, to, I want to trust in Jesus as Savior. You can catch me at the back on your way out the door. There's a number we've put there that that's um, a Google voice number we've set up for the church. You can text that and I'll, or leave a voicemail there and I'll get back with you this week to let you know how you can trust in Jesus Christ. Folks, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Don't forsake the fellowship. Even in these very weird days, let's remember that we are united as the body of Christ. We get to share in that experience together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Pray you would do uh, what only you can and strengthen our fellowship. I thank you for the love that's in this church. I thank you for the relationships that are here. And I pray that those grow and those deepen. Even in these days of COVID and socially distancing and, and wearing masks, would you, even in these days, deepen our fellowship with one another? We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.